Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, welcome back to our study of Romans. We're having a hot debate up here about whether or not mini pigs are a real thing. So you can join in um, if you have some insight into that. Uh, I want to begin this morning with uh, giving you some time to do some reflection uh, after we pray. But uh, even before that, take a look at the calendar because I want to give you a quick calendar update. Um, we uh, kind of, as, as this goes, it's always sort of subject to adjustment. And so last week we made it all the way through chapter 7. Um, which is kind of what I anticipated, but um, that means we didn't start into 8, and so we'll start into 8 today. And as I was preparing my notes for 8 for us, um, and thinking about Romans 8, and how, I mean, uh, among other things, I recently claimed from right there that Romans 8 is, you know, the most important chapter in the Bible. Um, I don't think we should rush through it. So what I want to do with Romans 8 is to just linger a little longer than we might otherwise because I want you to get quite a bit out of uh, the words that Paul's communicating. So what we'll do is um, we'll stretch our discussion of Romans 8 over this week and next week. And then after that, we, I believe we'll have our spring break. And when we come back, um, we'll do Romans 9 through 11 in one shot on March 30th. Then we'll walk through the last portions of the book fairly quickly. Now, the reason why that's okay is because the last parts of Romans are fairly simple to understand. It's living them out that is the challenge, right? Um, it reminds me of Mark, one of my favorite Mark Twain quote. Mark Twain quotes. It's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do because we didn't have to live them. So what I'll do in that last portion is we won't be short-circuiting us ourselves um, by going fast through those sections. It will be okay, and we'll make sure and get some notes on page so that when we ourselves are doing some reading and meditation and allowing the Spirit to draw our attention to what we should be obeying and applying, um, we'll have some thoughts to help put all that together. Anyway, so we're going to uh, smash the back end together just a tiny bit so that we can make sure and unpack what really is one of the most um, powerful and, and pregnant and meaningful chapters in all of Scripture. If you, I don't know if you were here when I said this, or I don't expect you to remember at all, but I said um, up here that if you were to ask me, hey, I only can read one chapter of the Bible for the rest of my life, for whatever reason, I don't know why you'd ever be in that situation, but imagining that if that were a real thing, I would send you to Romans 8. Because I think in nowhere else in Scripture do you have all the major themes and storylines and truths pulled together in compact, loaded fashion. So we're going to unpack that together today. So let me pray, and then I'll tell you kind of our plan of attack. Father God, we come before you as your children, grateful for your grace. We all need it um, every single day. Without your grace, we are destined for judgment, and we're also destined to make a mess of the world in which we live, make a mess of our own lives. So we pray, God, that you would help us as we continue exploring the ways in which you have acted in Christ and act through the Spirit to, uh, to save us thoroughly. Pray, God, that we would remember that we're not moving on from that grace. We're just tapping deeper into it. And um, I do ask, Lord, that you would do uh, your normal thing where you take all of the things that we talk about and you take the text that we're reading and you draw our attention to the portions of it that are uh, what we need to hear today, whether that be a word of encouragement or a word of rebuke, whether that be something for ourselves or for someone else, whatever it is, Lord, we ask that you would guide our listening in that sense. Help us to understand the meaning of the words and um, 
to focus on what you would have us focus on so that we might rightly glorify you with our lives. So we're grateful for the chance to get together and study without fear of any number of things that could get in the way of this. So help us to, uh, to use our time well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to begin by doing some reflection. Two things I want you to do. First of all, I want you to take a few moments. Don't spend too long on this. And if you were here with us last week, just write down a couple things that we learned about the law last week. So if you want to do it off the top of your head, that's fine. If you want to read portions of chapter 7, that's fine. If you want to look back at your notes, that's also fine. Just spend a couple minutes, not long on this. Maybe even just if it's one thing, that's fine. Just what did we learn about the law last week? And then what I want you to do with the majority of the time I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a few more minutes than normal up front here, because I want you to just crack your Bible open, read through Romans 8, the whole thing, all 39 verses. Just read through that thing, make one observation. What's something that you notice? Could be really simple, could be super profound, doesn't matter either way, it's fine, it's great. One observation and ask one question and write that down in the space provided in your notes. So what did we learn about the law last week? One or two things, and then read Romans 8 and make one observation and write down one question, and then we'll jump in from there. All right, let me go ahead and get your attention. My apologies if I'm cutting you off. Um, I know life can be crazy, and sometimes it's hard to set aside time to just sit and read through the Scriptures and think about it. So hopefully that moment of being able to do that will be beneficial for you. For our purposes, let's talk for just a few moments. Um, somebody give me something, somebody who has never spoken in here before. Um, I don't care who you are, but I know who you are, just kidding. Um, uh, so tell me something that you remember that we learned about the law last week. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the law makes sin worse. The law increases the trespass, but where the trespass increases, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. So good, yeah, so you have this this um, seemingly negative part of the law. And I argued there's a negative side of what the law does, makes sin worse, but even that actually becomes part of God's overall good purpose for it. Good, what else do we learn? What's something else? You can raise your hand even if you have before on this one. Yes, ma'am. Okay, not to depend on it for your salvation. Yeah, there's certain things it can't do. It can't save you. It can point out the problem that needs to be saved, but it can't ultimately save you. Yeah, that's kind of a good summary of, of what we looked at. The law in its, Is the law itself bad? No. No, is the law to blame for our problems? No, like the law is good. It, repre- it, it, is, a, it is a reflection of God's good and holy character. And it's good in that it tells us good things to do. Um, we kept using this, or I did anyway, this kept image, using this image last week of pool rules up on the side of a pool. Those things are good. Those lists of rules are good because they tell you how to like, you know, not hurt yourself. When God gave Israel the law, we're talking specifically about that law, it was good because it told, told Israel how to live, but it was limited in that it, it pointed to this salvation thing, but it couldn't accomplish it. It even pointed out the nature of the problem and intensified it in some way, but it couldn't actually do anything about it. And uh, we'll pick up with that thought here in just a moment when we look at Romans 8. Tell me uh, some of your, uh, let me, let's start with the observations. Somebody tell me something you noticed about Romans 8, just an observation you made. Live by the Spirit, Live by the Spirit. yeah. Paul talks about the Holy Spirit more in this chapter than in any other chapter in all of his writings. 
He, if you want to know what Paul thinks about the Holy Spirit, if you really, if you want a decent understanding of the Spirit in general, this is one of the best places to go. Maybe this in John 14. I mean, this, we are learning more about the Spirit here than we, than we will anywhere. Absolutely. Good. What else do you notice? The full glory of God is yet to be revealed. Yeah, so we have this glory piece. And I don't know if you've noticed, um, because we haven't drawn a lot of attention to it, because there's so many of these little details, but the word glory has kind of popped up Every couple chapters in the book of Romans. We started in chapter 1 where, where God, mankind actually rejected the glory of God and chose instead to look to other things. Then Abraham glorified God in chapter 4. Then, uh, actually before that, in chapter 3, we all fall short of God's glory. So you have this glory word that's shown up, and here you have this glory being like accomplished, but not yet it's in the future. Okay, one more observation. Yes. There's hope, absolutely. Man, that's a word to write at the top of this chapter. I mean, the whole back half, or at least the whole middle third of it is all about hope. Um, I, I love, part of why I think I love this chapter so much is it's honest. You have that threefold repetition of groaning. We'll probably end up talking about it next week just for time's sake, but the, you know, the world is groaning. We're groaning, and the Holy Spirit is groaning with us. Yeah, there's a real honesty, but it's not despair because it's hope. Because we recognize that ultimately there's a perspective that we've been, we've been granted, we've been allowed in on, that enables us to see these things differently. Good. What about some of the questions that you had? Um, and by the way, when we get to the end of Romans 8, at the end of next week, I'll probably just try to lock in some time towards the end of that portion to give you a chance to ask these questions that I may not have answered. But for now, let's just throw a couple out in the air. We probably won't dig deeply into them, but tell me what's, what are some of the things you're wondering as we approach Romans 8? Yeah, so, yeah. Believes. Yeah, yeah. So in 8, 29, and 30, you have this predestination language. We'll absolutely talk about that. Yeah, you probably have to wait a week, but the anticipation can build. Um, I, I, I think that this is one of the most beautiful texts in Scripture if we understand what Paul is doing. Um, and if we don't, then it actually becomes, I think, a hindrance to a, an understanding of, of some of these things. So if anybody ever says to you, do you believe in predestination? The answer is yes, it's in the Bible. It's just, what do you mean by predestination? And we'll talk about that. Absolutely. That's one of, one of my questions whenever I come to this is, am I understanding this right? Just making sure. Uh, yes. Uh-huh. So when we pray, I mean, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a good question. Yeah, it's um, and I don't know if there's a wrong way, you know, to address God, so long as you're addressing the the God, the, the one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Technically speaking, we pray to the Father uh, in the name of the Son or through the Son in the Holy Spirit. But of course, in in some of these matters, there's no need to be super technical. Um, I don't have quite a few friends and family who who pray, dear Jesus. Um, I talk to Jesus all the time. Sometimes I even talk to the Holy Spirit. I don't pretend to know exactly how the Trinity works, but what the heck, you know what I mean? Um, There have been people in history who have developed really elaborate and interesting prayer lives by thinking about the specific roles of Father, Son, and Spirit. I never want to go too far with all that. But yeah, I, I think as long as we understand we're praying to one God who's three persons, there's certainly some different ways to see that. But you, what you see in this passage is why we created the doctrine of the Trinity. You see three separate things, but one thing. You know what I mean? So God sent the Son 
So there's a blurring of the lines here. There's a difference between the two, but the difference seems to be like not as super strict and strong. Same thing with Christ and the Spirit. So which one of them intercedes? Is this two separate people interceding to a third? How does this work? And ultimately, that's where we arrive at the doctrine of the Trinity. But yeah, good observation, or good question. Uh, both of the last one, then we'll jump in. Yeah. This is kind of a two-part question. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, uh, since the Holy Spirit you know, will intercede for us, mm-hmm. does he still intercede for us when we get sidetracked? You know, if we had good intentions or sincerely meant to pray for something. And then, am I doing a cop-out one? I've lately focused my prayers on accepting God's perfect will instead of, you know, asking him mm-hmm. For something, yeah. Um, so let me. This, the questions were. Um, so oh, I forgot to think about it enough to repeat them. So the first part of it was the spirit interceding for us. Does that happen even when we are sort of distracted, if you will? Um, and then secondly, uh, you know, you're talking about when you pray, you focus more on, you know, God let your will happen as opposed to asking him for specific things. On the latter one, I think it's a both end. I think that we are told to ask for things, but we are told to submit to the will. And there are probably different seasons in life when we need to focus on one more than the other. If you're just asking, 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 then probably lean, lean in toward surrender, prayers of surrender for a while. But if you're never asking for anything, um, I'm not saying you're not, but if someone is never asking God for anything, then that probably means that we're trying to do too much on our own. You know, It is actually in asking him for help that we glorify him. With regard to the former one, we'll talk about it when we get there a little bit, yeah, about what that means, and I'll save some of that for then. So good, good. Well, wheels are turning. I like this. This is going to be fun. So let's start talking through this text, and we're going to take it a portion at a time. This first section is uh, Romans 8, 1 through 11. And um, it, really, it really does kind of follow up on, on chapter 7 pretty strongly. So let me give you some introductory thoughts and then we'll read through the text. The main point of Romans 8, 1 through 11 is that through Christ and the Spirit, God has accomplished what the law could not achieve. So you mentioned earlier when it comes to the law, one of the things we learned is that it can't save us. It can point out the problem, it can tell us how to live, but it can't actually deal with the problem and get us to a point where we can live it out. And what Paul is saying here, he's finishing the argument. He has said previously, hey, thanks be to God who saves us. Okay, how? Now he's going to unpack it. And the main point of these first 11 verses in particular is what the law pointed to but couldn't accomplish, God has done. How? Through Christ and the Spirit. So one more, a couple more times, let's, let's state this in some different ways. What is it that the law couldn't accomplish? Well, we might say it this way. The law could not liberate us uh, from both the penalty and the power of sin. Couldn't liberate us from either. It couldn't liberate us from the penalty of sin because it just sort of confirmed that we're in trouble. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the law like, doesn't do anything about the fact that we've done anything wrong except for point out the fact that we've done something wrong. And so we, we need to sometimes pause and think about these things. Before Christ and the Spirit, without Christ and the Spirit, we are headed toward the full consequences of active rebellion against God. That God is right to judge us because we have rejected him and, and deformed his world. So the law can show us that we've done that. But if all we have is the law, good luck. The penalty's still coming. Secondly, not only do we have the penalty coming, but we find ourselves in bondage. We find ourselves locked into and living under the power of sin. I can't not do wrong. Even when I try, I tend to fail. And when I succeed, then I fail more because I think I'm better than everybody else who isn't succeeding. So either way I go, the law is like helping me understand that I need to be freed, but it's not actually freeing me. And Christ, our God does this through Christ and the Spirit. 
Another way of putting this is that through Christ and the Spirit, um, what God does is he makes us right with himself and turns us into holy people. So Mark has mentioned a couple of times during our sermon series on Romans, that old hymn that said, uh, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Love that hymn, love that line. That's what we're talking about, that double cure. I deserve to be punished for what I've done. Uh, because again, I have told the creator of the universe, I'll do it my way, thanks. And as a result, I've hurt other people. I deserve to be punished for that. And now I've locked myself into a pattern that I can't be freed from. I need a double cure. I need to be saved from wrath and I need to be made holy. I need to be made pure. And that's what Paul is saying Jesus has done. He said at the end of chapter 7, who's going to save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who gives me the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Awesome. How does that work? Welcome Romans 8. That's where it enters into the scene. So let's read through what we see here. I want to read through verses 1 through 4, and then we'll talk about um, them in order. We'll talk as we go. As always, if you have a question at any point, feel free to toss your hand up, and, uh, and we'll reflect on your question or try to answer your question. Um, and at the end of each of these little subsections, I'll pause and see what you're thinking. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody just say amen real quick. Amen. Yeah, I had a kid in my, or not a kid, he was like, he was older than me, but a guy in my first Romans class, uh, every, every single time I, I read Romans 8.1, he would interrupt me with an amen. It was awesome. Uh, you don't have to interrupt me every time, but I'm used to hearing amen when I read that verse. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> nice, there you go. Awesome. Amen. Because in Christ or through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, I know we can say it all the way through, huh? For what the law was powerless to do. Here's, here's the, here's what, here, here, here this verse. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is a loaded few verses. In your own personal study of Scripture, if you have a habit of memorizing the text, which I hope we all do, I would suggest Romans 8, 1 through 4. Because it's only by meditating on these verses over the course of many months and years that you'll really grasp the truth, that will really grasp the truth of what Paul's saying. Let's start to unpack it a little bit. He starts with this first word, therefore. Now, whenever we see the word therefore, we always want to figure out, okay, what's it there for? What is it pointing to? And this one's a little bit weird, because usually the way we talk, the way the language works, the way the therefore works is you say, okay, da-da-da-da-da-da, I love you so much, therefore you can trust me. So the therefore says, in light of what I've just said, what I'm about to say is true. This one works a little weird. It would be like if I said, therefore you can trust me because I love you so much. So the therefore kind of points in every direction. It is building on all that Paul has said before. He just said a couple verses ago, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. But I think it's especially in a strange way pointing forward. Therefore, there's now no condemnation. What's the therefore pointing to? The next statement. Because in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from law of sin and death. You follow what I'm saying? So in a general sense, the therefore tells us, in light of what God has done, there is now no condemnation. That word condemnation means penalty. There is now no penalty. This particular word is only used three times in the Bible, in the New Testament. 
Twice in Romans 5, verses 16 and 18, talking about the condemnation that came as a result of Adam's sin and our sin with it. The condemnation, the penalty that's coming, Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is true both vertically and horizontally. It's true mainly vertically. There is no condemnation for you. Nobody's left to accuse you of anything before God. So Satan says, but you're so bad. And you're like, yeah, he knew that already. That's why he died for me. Oh, silence. A major part of Jesus defeating Satan in your life is that the accusations Satan brings against you don't matter. The point is not that you're good. So when Satan says you're not good, you can say, I know. That's why I rely on Jesus. You ain't got nothing left to say. Peace. You know what I mean? You don't have to tell the devil peace, but you get the point of what I'm saying. So there is now no condemnation. Nobody can accuse you before God. And I think there's also a horizontal dimension to this, where the Jews couldn't say to the Gentiles, y'all are so bad. The Gentiles couldn't say to the Jews, y'all are so bad. Not that they can't call each other to faithfulness, but if they point to each other and say, you don't keep these particular festivals, therefore you're going to hell. Really? Because now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, you guys aren't right with God because you're not respecting our traditions, or you guys aren't right with God because you are keeping all these traditions. Really, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hear these words. There's now no penalty. The penalty that you should face eternally, the consequences that you should experience for your rejection of God and deforming of God's world will not be faced by you because Jesus himself is taking care of it. And Paul will explain to us how. So therefore, there's now no condemnation for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I want to focus on that word you, has set you free. The you in that verse is singular, which is not what we would expect. When you speak to a group of people, like in English, I say you and I might mean you, or I say you and I might mean everybody. This is why I'm a firm believer in the fact that wherever you live in this country, you should use the word y'all, because it is the only way in the English language to refer to a group of people in the second person. So normally, if we were translating the Greek in Midwest speak, whenever you see you, it would say y'all. Y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is singular. You, you, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. N.T. Wright says, this, one of, this scholar, N.T. Wright says um, that this is like one of those paintings whose eyes just follow you. You ever seen those things? I don't understand how that works, but it's weird. You walk this way. And you're like, When I was a kid, I would try to run to get away from it. Of course, you're not supposed to run in a museum, but you know. Our kid on the way in tried to lay down in front of another grown man and caused him to trip in front, almost fall on his face. So, you know, it runs in the family, I guess. So the you is, just locks in on you. Paul is saying, no, no, you don't get to say, hey, maybe this is true for them. This, we tend to do this with grace, with the gospel. And maybe it's true for them. Maybe it's true for the religious people, the church people, the smart people. Maybe it's true for the people who understand what the heck Michael is saying. You know what I mean? Like, maybe it's true for them. No, it's true for you, Paul says, like a painting whose eyes will find you. I want you to understand that you are included in what I'm saying takes place in Christ in this verse. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So let's take this verse slowly. Again, therefore, there is now, not just in the future, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a big statement. Because the law of the Spirit, because in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Then it's like, well, how? How does that work? Well, Paul will tell us. Next verse. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh... God did 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. I want to start with that phrase. So he condemned sin in the flesh. I suggested to you last week that part of how the law, even in its negative role, serves the gospel is that the law draws sin all to one place. So Israel is given the law, and this actually causes sin to get worse in Israel than it is anywhere else. And this moment when Israel is at her worst, participating with the Romans to put the Messiah on the cross, also happens to be a place where God deals with sin. So sin is drawn to this one particular point where God can handle it. I gave you the, the, uh, the example last week of at my house when there's toys everywhere, sometimes we'll say, all right, all the toys on the front rug, we make the mess worse than it was before because if we can get it to that one point, then we can take care of it. Another, another type of similar thing would be if we had a, let's say we had a bomb and like we're looking at this bomb and it's going to go off and we don't know how to stop the bomb from going off and we call the experts and they're like, we don't know which wire to cut. So what could they do to solve this problem? Well, the bomb squad could take that bomb to a secure location somewhere out in the countryside where it's not going to cause anybody any damage, sit it down, walk away, and let the thing go off in such a way that nobody is harmed. Another example, this is good one. You ever seen The Lord of the Rings? That one ring of power? What happens when that ring of power is destroyed? You've defeated the problem of evil because all of evil was concentrated in that one place. So what we're talking about here, when, God, when Paul says that he condemns sin in the flesh, he drew all of sin together to its worst and handled it and condemned it and passed his judgment on it in the person of Jesus, in Jesus' death on the cross. Michael Byrd, another scholar who I've appreciated, says, Jesus sucks the poison of sin from us and draws its vile venom into his own flesh where it is denounced and defeated. One more image. It's like Jesus is a sponge. And you put the sponge in the bucket of water and then where's the water? It's in the sponge. It just soaks all that sin up onto himself. So that the sins that you've committed, the ones that you maybe you're committing right now, I don't know what's going through your head, and the ones that you're committing in the future, he, he soaked those up into himself and died for them all in this one place. God passed judgment on sin in the flesh. Like, how does this work? Well, Paul says that God sent Jesus to be a sin offering. You can read up about sin offerings in the verses I've put on your notes, Leviticus 5 and Numbers 15. It's pretty fascinating to go back and read some of the details of how this particular offering worked. In the ancient world, the people of Israel had all different sorts of offerings. Um, I, one of my Old Testament professors in seminary described the offerings and sacrifices as being kind of like roses uh, being handed from a husband to a wife. Why might a husband give his wife roses? Well, I don't know, to say, I love you. Why else might he give her roses? I don't know, to say, I'm sorry. Why else might he give her roses? I don't know, to say, can, can, can I, whatever, go play golf this weekend? Whatever. So in the similar ways, you have these different offerings in the Old Testament that represent different facets of having a relationship with God. You have a thank offering, which of course is just a way of saying thank you. You have a free will offering, which is just an a way of going above and beyond and saying, I don't even have to offer this, but I want to because that's how good you are, God. And then you have the sin offering talked about in Leviticus 4 and Numbers 15. Let me tell you a couple things about sin offerings. Sin offerings were sins committed unintentionally or ignorantly. It's hard to find a good English word to translate to Hebrew. Um, literally what it says is uh, it's for sinning, uh, not, not sinning with a high hand. It's like, what does that mean? When you're just like, I'm, you know what, I know this is sin and I'm going to do it anyway. That's not what this is about. 
There's different things for that. What we're talking about is the sin you do that you wish you didn't do. What we're talking about is, speaking of my son, when he does something and then we say, buddy, what's up? Oh, I didn't mean to. What is he saying? Well, he, he did mean to. But what he's saying is, well, now there's a part of me that wishes I didn't do that. Matter of fact, it's exactly the kind of sins that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7. And I want to do good, but I find myself doing evil. Why am I worrying again? Why am I being hateful toward this person again? Why am I losing my patience again? Why am I being lazy again? Like, what's wrong with me? These are the sins that the sin offering deals with. It's specifically for those sins that we just wish we couldn't commit, but we just don't know what to do with them. Now, how does it work? Well, in the Old Testament, when you lay your hand on the head of the animal, the sin that you've committed is transferred to the animal's account, so to speak. So that when the animal dies, the person is free from that sin, or the community is free from that sin. No longer have to face the consequences for that sin. God is no longer against us for that sin. That's why we offer these. Or that's why they offer these sacrifices. So you you would sort of touch this animal and transfer, in some sense, you know, the sin from your account to it, and then offer it as a sacrifice. Why was God doing this? Isn't this strange? Yeah. Well, it took a while to help us get prepared for understanding the significance of Jesus. That's why He did these things. Specifically, this idea of the sin being transferred to the sin meant that, or to the animal, uh, t- shows us that sin in the Old Testament, this particular type of sin offering, had two goals. Uh, one of them was forgiveness, the other one was purification. Precisely the kind of things that we're saying we need. I need something to repair the relationship with God that I have mended, and I need something to turn me into the kind of person who is actually living a holy life. It just so happens that the sin offering is precisely designed for just those things. There's one more thing about the sin offering that I think is relevant and the reason why Paul uses it here. And it's in Numbers 15.29. Let, um, let me read to you Numbers 15.29. Uh, the author, Moses, the author of Numbers says, One and the same law applies to everyone who sins without full awareness, whether a native-born Israelite or a foreigner residing among you. Well, now that's interesting. Because let's remember... What was going on on the ground in Rome when Paul wrote this letter? He's writing this letter in about 57 AD. Eight years previously, all the Jews, including the Jewish Christians, were sent away from Rome by the emperor. They were expelled from the city. At that point, the Gentile Christians had to take over leadership of the church. About five years later, in 54 AD, you got a new emperor, Nero. He was good before he went crazy. Nero takes the throne. He allows the Jews to come back. The Jews come back thinking they're going to, hey, here we are, you guys need us, let's jump back and things, I want things to be the way they were. And the Gentiles are like, yo, we don't need you anymore, like we figured this out. And so you have tension between these two communities, everybody's trying to figure it out. And it seems like there was, not like over the top, it's not like they were all fighting all the time, but there was tension. You can read it under the surface of Romans all the way through, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. You have this tension. And what Paul's saying here is, what God did in sending Jesus to die is he sent him as a sin offering, which is specifically the offering that applies equally to both of you. Once more, we see that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And I need him just like you need him, just like she needs him, just like he needs him, just like they need him. So God sent what we needed in Jesus dying in our place. And the result of this is people who live up to the law. Verse 3 and 4, he condemns sin in the flesh, here into verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. I would expect that to say in him. He doesn't say in him. 
Paul's not talking about Jesus' death as fully meeting the righteous requirement. He's talking about how because of Jesus' death, the righteous requirement of the law is fully met in us who walk do, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the result is people who, who live up to the law. Remember, the goal all along was not just forgiveness, but transformation. And Paul is saying that actually is accomplished here too. How? By the Holy Spirit. And from here, he'll launch into a discussion of what he means by, when he says that we uh, live and walk according to the Spirit. But first, let me pause, having said some things about the death of Jesus in, in these verses, and give you a chance to ask any questions you have about that. All right, let's keep trucking through this then. Verses 5 through 11. Um, let's see, I think I'll read all of this together and then we'll take it apart. We'll take it in halves and just say a couple, couple things about each half. Starting in verse 5, building on what we just said. Uh, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. For the mind governed by the flesh is death, But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin... The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. So you can break this down into two pretty simple sections, verses 5 through 8 and verses 9 through 11. In verses 5 through 8, Paul says there are two different kinds of people, spirit people and flesh people. So he's breaking it down for us and he's saying, listen, everybody's in one of two camps. You're either in the spirit camp or you're in the flesh camp. So if Paul was in front of them with a whiteboard, this is what he would do. He would say, listen, there are two basic groups and everybody in this world fits into one of these groups, the spirit group and the flesh group. And then he talks a little bit about the difference between these groups. He says they think differently and therefore they desire differently. So the spirit group... These people, their minds are focused on the Spirit, and therefore their desires are in line with the Spirit. Over here, these flesh people, their minds are focused on this flesh, and therefore their desires are for fleshly things. So they're thinking about all of the things they want to do that aren't right. Thinking about all the ways in which they want to look out for number one. Because my flesh reminds me that I'm vulnerable, so since I'm vulnerable, i got to make sure and watch out for myself. And if I got to make sure and watch out for myself, then you are a threat to me. And I got to position myself in such a way that you can't hurt me. So the fleshly mind works like this, and it causes us to want all sorts of things that are not in line with what God desires. So they think differently, and therefore they desire differently. And Paul says, listen, make, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, he says. He says, it's not just like people who follow the law or people who don't. No, 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 that's not the distinction. The distinction is people who are in the spirit or people who are in the flesh. 
And he says, those who are in the flesh, there's no way living by flesh can please God, even if you're doing it religiously. This is where Paul is finding uh, those who are part of the family of Israel who had not put their faith in Jesus. He's saying they're living by the law, but the law actually just confirms that they're living by the flesh. So it's not, don't hear good people, bad people. That is not, that's not the primary point of this distinction. The distinction is not people who look like they have good behavior or people who look like they have bad behavior. No, a lot of people who look like they have good behavior are actually on this flesh side because they're not trusting in God. They're saying, by my own moral performance, I'm establishing my superiority over other people and I'm putting God in a position where he has to bless me. They're looking at God as some sort of a formula. They're looking at God as something that they control by their good behavior. And we all fall into this at times. Anytime you think, man, God, like I've been good. Like what's wrong? Why aren't you blessing me? Oh, so that's how we thought it worked. You know what I mean? It's not that God doesn't bless you in response to your obedience. It's a different question for a different day. But if we ever think like by doing good, I make God do good to me, then we're living by this over here. And if we ever think by doing better than what those people over there are doing, that means I'm superior in every way and it would, right for me, it would be right for me to stand over them and say, look how bad you are and look how good I am. No, that's life in the flesh. Paul says all those thoughts that lead to those kind of things are fleshly. And there is no way, even if you're good at keeping the law, that living over here can put you in a position where you please God. I mean, he is drawing the line in the sand. But then in the next couple of verses, he says, hey, good news, all y'all are spirit people. That's verses 9 through 11. So he says there's, there's flesh, spirit people and there's flesh people. And flesh people, whether good or bad versions, are all on the wrong side of the ledger. They cannot please God. But the good news is y'all aren't flesh people. You're spirit people. That's where verse 9 comes in. It says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. Now, what Paul is not saying is, I don't know if the Spirit lives in you. He doesn't doubt they have the Spirit, but he wants them to draw the conclusion for themselves. He wants them to realize, well, I mean, I do have the Spirit, so I guess that means I'm over here. Yes, that's exactly what it means. By surrendering yourself to Jesus, putting your faith in His death as the thing that settles your account with God, and then in response to that, God sends His Holy Spirit into you, By putting your faith in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit, you can know with confirmed confidence that you are on this side of the equation. That's Paul's point here. Y'all are over here. You're in this particular place. This is, you know, like you guys. Now he says in verses 10 and 11, sometimes Paul says things that are complicated, and I think I get why. In this particular case, I just think he was being a little wordy. So let me read you what he wrote, and then I'll tell you the, the, the simple version of what he said. He wrote in verse 10 and 11, But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Basically, what I think Paul is saying here is, listen, you're still going to die. But it's all good because your resurrection is as secure as Christ's. That's his point here. You still got this body of death. You still are like living in this this particular body will face its demise. You will die. But that doesn't need to be a threat to us anymore. Because if Christ rose from the dead, God's going to raise you too. You can be just as confident that you are going to experience resurrection life 
as you can be that Jesus himself was raised from the dead. Why? Because the spirit of the one who raised from the dead is actually alive in you here and now. So again, to come back over this section, which I think is fairly simple, but at the same time, it's sort of a little bit circular in some ways that can be difficult to follow. Paul says, all right, first up, just so you know, God dealt with the sin problem in Jesus so that we who put our faith in him and receive the spirit can actually be people who follow the law. Because you see, there's two kinds of people, flesh people and spirit people. And flesh people can't please God, spirit people can. And y'all are spirit people. Now that doesn't mean you're not going to die, you're still going to die. But death is not the end of your story, you're going to be raised again. And you can know this with confidence, because the same God that raised Jesus from the dead has promised to raise you from the dead, and given you the Holy Spirit as proof that that's going to happen. Does that follow? That's what Paul's saying here. So again, the main point of this is that through Christ and the Spirit... God has accomplished what the law cannot achieve. It can point to the problem, it can point to the solution, but it can't do anything about the problem and it can't accomplish the solution. Good news. God always intended it to be this way so that he could come and fulfill what he started with the law by sending Jesus and the Spirit to do what the law pointed to but could not make happen. Let me pause. Give you guys a minute to think. Romans 8, 1 through 11. Take a look back at the text. Think about the things we've said. Tell me what portions of this are either unclear or maybe seem irrelevant or anything of that kind. Yes? Michael, is this spirit versus flesh more talking about the Christian who struggles with the flesh but the distinction between Christian and non-Christian? Yeah, so she said, is this spirit-flesh distinction um, not not one who struggles with the flesh but like non-Christian, Christian? Yes to the second piece of this. This is not saying that whenever you're tempted to sin, you, um, it's not saying that whenever you're tempted to sin, you now fall back into this part of it. No, these are people whose lives are dominated in this way. So let's, and the reason why Paul can say this is think about, think about the last few chapters and, uh, and how this all plays out together. So way back in chapter five, Paul said, remember that Adam sinned And as a result, he created this whole world of sin. But that Jesus died and actually created this whole new world where Adam's sin was taken care of. So you have these two different realms. Adam's one act created a whole realm where death reigns and people sin because they're afraid to die. Jesus comes and deals with the problem so that people now are free from judgment, don't need to be afraid, and therefore can live and love. So we have these two different realms. That's Romans 5. Then in Romans 6, Paul comes along and says, when you are baptized, you move from here to here. He says, this world over here where Adam's way is the way is a world in which sin reigns and we're dead to God. God's not dead, but we're dead to him. And when you get baptized, you come over here into this Jesus realm, this other realm, this realm of grace, where God reigns through grace and through us, and we are dead to sin. Having made this distinction now, Paul can go, so this is, the green would be Romans 6. Paul then comes along and says, the law actually points us toward the good, but takes us toward the bad, because we're weak. But in taking us toward the bad, it actually brings us to this point 
where all of what Paul has been saying, um, you know, created this whole new world of Jesus, was actually accomplished, which is the cross. And now Paul in, in Romans, I got too many colors and I'm, I'm getting lost in my drawing up here. So if you're lost, don't worry, I am too. Then Paul comes along in Romans 8 and says, remember how there's these sort of two separate realities? The sin reality, the Adam reality, the flesh reality, the condemnation reality, and the Jesus reality, the grace reality, the, the forgiveness and freedom reality and life. He's saying, you've moved from one to the other. So in the middle of Romans 8, when he says there are spirit people and there are flesh people, he's saying, you're either in this world or you're in this world. Make sense? And we are in this world. Now, because we're in this world and yet it isn't fully accomplished, we still find ourselves drawn at times back to this old world, even though we don't have to do it. So we still hear the old master saying, uh, say this word, look at this image, um, undercut this person, make them look bad, defend yourself, da 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 Steal that candy bar, whatever, you know. Yes? Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm hmm. Were you raised Baptist or Catholic? Interesting. Wow. Okay. I think you were taught wrong from the beginning. But I don't know if you just heard what you said. You, you said I don't know if I've ever articulated original sin that well. So I don't know if I could re-articulate what you just said. But this idea that we're born with sin is what you were taught. And if we're born with sin, then how is it that Jesus could be sinless is essentially the, the heart of the question that you're asking. This is why the Catholics... This is going to sound so heavy-handed, but I don't know any other way to say it. Invented the... You ever heard of the Immaculate Conception? Not the Immaculate Reception. That's a football thing. The Immaculate Conception. The perpetual virginity of Mary. This is why some of Catholic doctrine of Mary is what it is. So, for instance, if sin is passed along through birth, then you need Mary to be miraculously free from this in order for her womb to be uncontaminated so that Jesus can be born without sin. This is why you have the idea that Mary herself was born under miraculous conditions so that somehow this sin that was passed down almost in our DNA or something, although this is kind of a pre-scientific error to some degree, didn't contaminate Jesus. Yeah, I think the whole thing's problematic and I think it's unnecessary. I think if you believe that, then you kind of have to go with what the Catholics say in that regard, or else it doesn't make any sense. Um, but I don't think you were born with sin in that sense. You were born into a sinful world, a world dominated by sin, a world in which there was no real way in which you weren't going to sin. But if you were born with sin, then you would be guilty from the start, right? Let me show you a couple of verses in Scripture. You're wondering about the same thing or something different? Yeah, so because he's fully God and fully man, that takes care of it. 
I, I feel you to some degree, but if like part of being human means being inherently sinful, then you can't be inherently sinful and then you can't be fully human without being inherently sinful. You know what I mean? So I, I see what you're saying. What we want to say is that the like fully God part though protects him from that inherent sinfulness. And that's where I would say, okay, but then we're not talking about actually being fully man. And the scriptures do say, Hebrews 4.12 and other places, that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. But you're saying like born into a sinful state. Original sin, original guilt are some of the words that this has been meant throughout time. Yeah, that you were born sinful. Let me, we'll come back to the, to, the, to the piece you're mentioning in a second. I appreciate you bringing that up. But I think if we still trace it out logically, I don't know how if we define being human as being, um, if we define human as being inherently sinful and Jesus was fully human, I, th- I, th- I still think maybe that there's... Yeah. Yeah. Now, I believe you for the record. I just don't believe in the inherent sinfulness. I think that what you're saying makes sense because we're not born inherently sinful. So I think we're born with the inclination to sin because we're born into a world that's ruled by death and therefore is governed by sin. So yeah, I I don't hold this, therefore I have no problem with what you said. But what you said is right, except if we're inherently sinful, then I don't think it works. Since I don't believe that though, I do believe what you're saying. Yes, let me come and show, yes ma'am. Uh huh. He was. Yes, he was sent here. You're thinking, you're quote. You're alluding to Second Corinthians five. He can't. He who knew no sin became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, but the problem still exists. If we are inherently sinful, and he is fully one of us, then he is inherently sinful. Otherwise, he's not fully human. Now, I believe what you're saying, again, because I don't believe we're inherently sinful. So let me, let me pause this for a second and show you that I actually don't think some of, this, some of our angst is, isn't necessary because I don't think the scriptures teach that we're born guilty. Take, uh, turn in your Bibles real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 2. You ever heard of the idea of the age of accountability? Yeah. So I'm going to show you, and now that's, I'm not saying like, there's a fully developed doctrine of the age of accountability in Scripture, but there's something that is, is pretty close to it. This is, by the way, is why you don't need to baptize your babies. It's actually Deuteronomy 1. Sorry, Deuteronomy 1, starting in verse 37. So Deuteronomy is Moses standing at the edge of the promised land, retelling Israel her whole story. God has already told Moses, you don't get to go into the promised land because you, just like the rest of this generation, didn't trust in me. But my people after you, a generation later, will actually enter into the land I promised. In Deuteronomy 1.37, Moses is talking to the people and he says, Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall not enter it either. But your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would not be taken captive, though, excuse me, and the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, They will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Dead Sea. So notice what Moses is saying there, that God told him, I'm punishing all y'all 
because you haven't believed in me. And the punishment is that you don't get to go in the promised land. And he tells them, but the little kids who were alive at the time when you rebelled, but didn't actually have any knowledge of good or bad, and so didn't participate in your lack of faith, won't be punished because they haven't done anything wrong. Here you have the beginnings of a doctrine of the age of accountability. In other verses, uh, the other verse that, uh, there may be more, but the main two I know of are that one in Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah 7, there's a prophecy, and we won't get into the details, but uh, you'll recognize the prophecy because it was ultimately fulfilled in the Virgin Mary, ironically. It doesn't have any theological connection to what we were talking about earlier, but it probably has some bearing on it. In uh, Isaiah 7, starting in verse 13, uh, Isaiah is given a prophecy of God, and he's going to talk about um, the uh, child, basically. So he's saying, here's how long until this happens, and he's going to give some mile markers for when this is going to take place. He says, here now, you house of David, is it not enough, this is Isaiah seven thirteen. is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Now, originally, Isaiah wasn't talking about a virgin giving birth. Now, God knew what he was saying when he inspired this prophecy, and it actually had kind of a double meaning, ultimately pointing forward to the Virgin Mary. But originally, what Isaiah is saying is, that woman who has never had sex, she's a virgin, will have sex, get pregnant, and by the time she gives her chi- he give birth to her child, this is going to happen. It's a fancy way of saying it'll happen within 10 months. All right? So nine months from now, this is going to go down. So he's using this as a timestamp. Now, what I, what, you don't need to remember that per se, but I want you to understand what he's doing because then we're going to look at what he says next. Verse 15, he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. In other words, before he gets old enough to make decisions about right or wrong, this is going to happen. So this passage is about other things, but in it you see an assumption on the part of the scriptural authors, on the part of the prophets, that there is a certain age, a certain point at which we become culpable, accountable for our sins. And I think these verses kind of show us, among other places, ultimately part of it is I don't think there's any text that says we're born inherently sinful. I think these verses show us that actually we very much aren't born inherently sinful. So everything y'all were saying about Jesus is 100% true. It's just not a problem for us to answer the inherently sinful question because it's not a biblical teaching anyway. Yes? Have you sinned to fall short of the glory of God? So have I. So I think what we recognize there is that two things. First of all, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we also remember that, um, I haven't said this in a while, probably not even since verse 1, that every time in Romans you see the word all in reference to people, the first meaning is both Jews and Gentiles. Even more so than every single individual. Because in that same verse, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles, for both groups have done wrong by God. So his point there is all sinned, Jews and Gentiles, and that would extend out to include all of us. So I'm not saying that there's a person who won't sin, except that there was a person who didn't sin, and his name was Jesus. And he was able to not sin, in part because he was fully divine. But he was also fully 100% human. Um, and that didn't necessarily mean that he was born inherently sinful. Yes, sir? But if you say that 
I can absolutely say that. I have no problem with that whatever, whatsoever. That's precisely what I think is true. But in no way... Oh, crap. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to repeat all that. I should have come and like given you a hug so you could speak it into the microphone. Did I just say all oh, crap on this thing? There you go, podcasters. Um, oh, darn. Shoot. If, by the way, if you haven't watched the video Shoot Christians Say on, Facebook, or on YouTube, you need to go find it. It's pretty great. Um... <laughs> Is is good, man. It's therapeutic. Um, so uh, basically, I, I, t- to reiterate for the podcasters, you just articulated a biblical understanding of Jesus in relationship to Adam. This is what Paul means when he says in Colossians one fifteen, he is the image of the invisible God. Adam was made after the image of the of, of God. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus was the prototype that humanity was made to look like. So one hundred percent, I don't have a problem saying that with that because again. What becomes complicated if, if people, if the statement is we are inherently sinful, then, then we have problems. So what you said is true in part because it doesn't assume that Adam or us are inherently sinful. Does that make sense? So, yeah, a couple more. <laughs> Look at Here we go. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, once in grace, really hard to get out of grace. So imagine if, um, if uh, you're in a ditch, right? And I'm like, hey, let me help you out of the ditch. So let's say, you know what? Let's say you try to run me over on your scooter. So mean. And I step aside and I'm like, hey, you can't get me, right? And then you fall into the ditch. You were trying to hurt me and you fell into a ditch. So it would be perfectly understandable if I was like, that's what you get. But let's say I don't. In grace, I give you the, the favor that you don't deserve, and I reach down to help you. I, I reach out and say, listen, I'm helping you out. All you got to do is reach out your hand. Give me your hand, I'll pull you out. Now, faith is you reaching out your hand to grab hold of me. You could sit there and go, no. Okay, well, I can't help you then. Faith is you reaching out your hand to grab hold of me. And I pick you back up and we start walking. Now, theoretically... You could turn around and run back toward the ditch and jump back to where you were before. But that would be the way you, but, but like I'm helping you out. You're not just going to fall back because if you start to trip, I'm going to catch you. You know what I mean? If I've helped you out of the ditch, then I'm certainly going to help you move forward. And the only way in which you're going to end up back in that ditch is if you look at me and say, I am not walking with you anymore. I am going back over here. I want nothing to do with you. Be gone. And even then the metaphor may break down because I might not give up on you. I might come over here and say, okay, well, I know you're flirting with that ditch thing and you think you want to be there the whole time, but I'm right here. You know what I mean? So I don't believe in once saved, always saved, because there's portions of Scripture that I think indicate that faith, continued faith is necessary. But I think it's really hard to get rid of God. He's a very persistent and patient and forgiving and loving father, husband, these, these things, you know, lover. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, good, good questions. Uh, there was, you had a question too, yes. Yeah, I 
Yeah, so the question is, if you have the Spirit, but you're not, living, you're not living in line with the Spirit, then like, what's happening? Have you lost the Spirit? And in this case, I would say you're like a, I don't know, a, a, a space heater that's plugged in, but not turned on. Like the access to power is still very much there. Power is actually still, I don't exactly know how electricity works, but let's just assume for the moment that it works this way. Power is still like flowing through those electrical wires and therefore it is, it is there in, you know, the space heater is plugged in, but you just got to turn it on. Now, you can unplug the space heater, at which point you have lost connection to the power source. When we're not living in accordance with it and we're rejecting the spirit, whether ignoring the spirit or disobeying or whatever... I don't think that means that we, like, kill, kill the connection. I think it just means we turn off the, the faucet, so to speak. This, obviously, it's a metaphor, but I think that's maybe, for me anyway, the best way to get at it. Because what the Bible teaches, apart from any metaphor or analogy, is that you now live in the Spirit. Remember what we said in the verse 5, that you have entered by, by, uh, by, by faith into this grace in which you now stand. This is where you are. You are in grace. You are in the realm of the Spirit. In the realm of the Spirit doesn't have anything to do with what we're feeling or whether or not we're doing a pretty good job today. It's just like this is now the truth about us because we have accepted God's grace and as a result God has sent His Spirit into us. But yeah, it's an untapped power source. Um, Yeah, a couple other questions. I saw some hands. I'll kind of work my way towards this side of the room. Yes. I have a question maybe to add on to that. Yes. I once read that you grieve Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I, I may get the reference wrong, but I think it's in Thessalonians where it says, don't grieve the Spirit of God. And that's actually one of those verses that shows us, we're not talking about like the force. We're talking about a personal being here. You can't grieve the force, but you can grieve the Spirit. Absolutely, yeah. So still there, I like what you're saying. That indicates that the Spirit's still present. just making it sad, you know? It's like a disobedient child. Mama's still mama, daddy's still daddy, but they're not happy about the situation. Yes? Back to the fully God, fully man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, whenever, you know, someone said that um, by being fully God, that protected him some, wouldn't that negate the, the whole speciality of the fact that he could call legions of angels to his or he could have stepped back and just played the, you know, get out of hell card or whatever, but he didn't. He, he, he lived fully as a man and mm-hmm. still didn't sin mm-hmm. and was obedient to the cross, to his father, and to the death and resurrection. Yeah. But if you, if you take that, that, you know, well, he was able to do that supernaturally, that kind of defeats the whole... Um, yeah, to some degree, yes. So, what's that? Didn't do what? Didn't access the supernatural power? Like we are, we are literally, yeah, we're literally tapping up against one of the only two actual mysteries in the Christian faith. There's, we always say it's a mystery, and what we mean usually is I don't get it, which is a fine way to use the word mystery. Properly speaking, there are two mysteries, which means we can understand what it's not, but it's kind of difficult to explain what it is because it's unlike anything we've ever seen. Those two mysteries are the Trinity. The inner being of God and the hypostatic union, which is the, means the personal union of the divine and human. So the, Jesus is fully human, fully divine, yet one person. So what we can, what's that? 
The hypostatic union. Hypostatic. Yeah, it's just an old school word for personal. Hypostatic, hypostasis was a Greek word for person. So it just means personal union. Yeah. Hypo. Here, I'll write it up here. Hypo. Yeah. You can look this up and read all about it. And uh, two books that are beneficial. Let me erase some of this stuff. Two books that are beneficial when it comes to understanding um, both the mysteries, the Trinity and, and the hypostatic union. That's um, Jesus is divine and human, but one person. So he has two natures in one person. Hypostatic means personal. That's what that means. Um, and it's easier when it comes to these things to say what they're not than to say what they are. And so ultimately, I'm not going to be able to solve for us with perfect language precisely what we're trying to get at. But what we know from the scriptures is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. What we know from the scriptures is that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet, we, yet he was without sin. What precisely that means in terms of it matching our experience, and what precisely that means in terms of whether or not it was actually possible for Jesus to sin, is a question that we're never going to be able to answer, at least not until the end. And even then I wonder sometimes if we'll know how exactly it works out. But what we can say is that part of the reason, why, I mean, the reason why the sacrifice worked is Jesus was fully man. Otherwise, remember, he says he condemned sin in the sinful flesh. God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so God condemned sin in the flesh uh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us. So he's, he's using the language as best he can to say that Jesus was fully man and yet he wasn't sinful. Sir, what are you, th- what are you thinking? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he absolutely did. He's he had feelings But yours be done. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. He experienced every temptation to sin. Actually, some would say, you might say he experienced more. I think this was a C.S. Lewis point. The man who gives in to temptation has no idea how hard it is to continue resisting. Now, there's a sense in which once you give in, it's even harder to say no, or that's what it feels like, but how do we know? You know what I mean? We literally don't. It was probably more hard for him than it, than it even is for us because he never gave in. Like, never once did he say, I'm just going to see what this is like. Never once. So we had a couple other questions, and then we do a time check. Oh, I did. Did I say? Yeah, I did. So um, the two books that you might want to look at are Know the Creeds and Councils, K-N-O-W. Know the Creeds and Councils. It's a little book, really helpful overview of the development of Christian doctrine. And then a second one is called Know the Heretics. Super, super, super nice title, you know. Uh, They're both by a guy named Justin Holcomb, H-O-L-C-O-M-B. And I assume you know how to spell Justin, or at least you can probably figure it out. So Justin, it's not like spelled weird or anything. It's not like J-O-U-X-S-T-Y-N-Q. J-U-S-T-I-N. So, yes. Yeah. God gave him a choice, you're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah, and uh, there's another statement about, you know, just trying to iron out specifically how does this work that he was fully human and, and not sinful. And again, these are wonderful things. I actually, apparently, like, we should spend one of these semesters doing a Wednesday night on just doctrine. We could talk about, talk about the Jesus being fully God, fully man the whole time. That'd be super fun. Um, so good, good. I, I love the dialogue. Let me, let me take a look at this and see if I want to push this any further or if I want to um, let, us, let us be... Um, any other questions? Was there other questions back there? Okay, there were. Yes. I think, sir, your hand's been up for quite a while. Did the Catholic Church invent the doctrine of original sin? What was the last part of the question? Yeah, the doctrine of original sin, I think, was created by Augustine. And Augustine it was a fantastically wonderful but imperfect person who had a lot of things about God that we should never forget and a lot of things about God that we, or a lot of, you know, doctrinal beliefs that we should forget, this being one of them. Augustine, um, and I don't want to just psychologize him, but uh, some of the, some of, he had a super intense philosophical background from like a particular school of philosophy that probably locked him into some patterns of thinking that um, didn't sort of allow him to fully grasp the meaning of certain texts. He didn't know Greek very well, so he read the Bible in Latin, which meant that in certain places he mistranslated certain things. He was a, a person who wrestled with passions of the flesh. I mean, he was a very sinful dude when he was, before he met the Lord. And so he was constantly sort of, he kind of had this weird like anti-sex thing because sex for him so represented like uh, his old life, that he seems to have developed almost an unhealthy negative stance toward it, toward all things sexual. And he also was fighting against a guy named Pelagius who taught that we could pull ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps. We ourselves have the power to make ourselves right with God and to choose to believe without any help from God. All these things taken together are many of the reasons why Augustine ended up saying, he wanted to say, no, like we need God so much we need God so deeply and thoroughly, which I agree with. But I think he, 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 he worked out some of the details in ways that I don't think fit. I don't know if you remember a couple, two weeks ago, three weeks ago on Romans 5, I told you that Romans 5.12 is, is a key verse for all of this. That um, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and then the next part of it, how do you translate it? Because of which all sinned. He translated in whom all sinned. Because he was reading the Latin. I mentioned that, didn't go into great detail on it. This is why that matters. Because that was the textual beginning of what I think is ultimately a right, uh, like a rightly motivated, wrong understanding of, of how some of this stuff works. But of, I mean, of, of course I might be wrong, right? I, ho- I, I should probably, hopefully you know, like, that's always kind of there. I could be wrong, so go back to the text and study the text. Take the text, take the text over what I say. Um, it just makes sure you're understanding it well, you know. Uh, but yeah, that's where it came from. We got time for maybe a couple others. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Awesome. And um, believe that you're saved. Um, I've always 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. So, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, great question. And we dealt with it some, but I don't mind speaking to it again because um, it's, it's a really important question. The question is about, so the timing of all this. If we're saying that baptism is a place where the Holy Spirit enters us and salvation is applied to us and all these sorts of things, then like, does, how does that work? Is it not faith? And even you mentioned praying the sinner's prayer that then Jesus saves us in response to our faith and that the water is kind of a going public with all of this. Um, let's see. So... And then what was, you mentioned something at the very end of that I wanted, oh crap, let me, oh darn. <laughs> what did you say at the end there? Oh man. Thief on the cross. So the thief on the cross is a little bit of a unique case because I mean Jesus hasn't yet actually died for the sins of the world, you know what I mean? So it's sort of one of these strange situations. But I have no problem with God, you know, in some sense breaking his own formula because it's not about a formula. Here's how I would, I can't remember if I said this a couple weeks ago, but I'll say it like this today. It's kind of like a wedding. I think I did. At what point is the couple married? Is it when they say, I do? Is it when they put rings on each other's fingers? Is it when I say, I pronounce you husband and wife? Is it when they kiss? Is it when they unite together sexually later on that day? I mean, when, it, when are they officially married? And the answer is yes. So with conversion, you have the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit drawing us close, our response in faith, um, the, the, you know, our repentance of our sin, our response in faith, our baptism, our surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. All of these are, are, are elements of conversion. And we can say, by saying any part of this, you can kind of refer to the whole. So when Paul says baptism is when this happens, I don't think he's trying to be real specific about first it's this, then it's this, then it's this, then it's this. He's pointing to this element of the conversion process, which I think is the norm for how a Christian is made. I mean, not I think. The New Testament knows of no unbaptized Christian. I mean, it is, is a process of conversion. But it's not so much like, let's figure out exactly the precise moment. It was whenever the first part of your body came up out of the water that the Holy Spirit entered. That takes us beyond what Scripture is interested in us knowing. And one of the classes I teach at the college is a class on Acts. And what I love about Acts is you can't ever come up with a perfect formula for how this works. Because I think part of what Luke, who wrote Acts, wants to tell us, and part of what God wants to tell us by inspiring this book is, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there are patterns, but no formulas. The Holy Spirit's not random. It's always some combination of hearing the gospel, being drawn by the Spirit, repenting, believing, being baptized, you know, um, obedience, all that stuff. It's all of these, always. uh, But how that works out in different people's lives is going to be different. So one other thing that I had a teacher once say that I found was helpful, and I've not said this in here, and this will probably have to be the last thing I say, yeah. I had a teacher one time say, Brian, you remember Mark saying this all the time. Uh, he would say that it's kind of like spiritual birth, kind of like hum- normal birth. Like there's a normal way for a child to be born, pass through the, through, the, through the canal of the woman and enter into the world. 
But we recognize that in certain situations, that's not, that does, it doesn't work that way. And so we have something called a C-section. Now, is a child born by cesarean section born? Well, yeah. But is that like the normal way in which children come into the world or like the, the preferred way? Well, no. Similarly, like all of this happening close together, hearing the gospel, repenting, believing, being baptized, is the way God designed this to work. This is the way he designed born again, new birth to happen. But in certain situations, because, you know, of all sorts of complications, including the way we were taught, whether there's water around, all these different kind of scenarios, on your deathbed kind of thing, or thief on the cross, God is not beholden to a formula. And if there's a situation in which, you know, one, yeah, let's say somebody is, you know, about to get into, about, like, let's say, this is how crazy I think grace is. If a person's on a plane, and they're an unsaved person, and that plane is going toward the ground, and they pray a prayer that they mean, oh my, oh my, I am in trouble, God save me, Jesus, I'm sorry, be my savior. Guess where they'll be when the plane hits the ground? Yeah. And it doesn't have to, you don't have to, you know, crash into an ocean for that to work, right? You don't have to have water. <laughs> so, let me, let me go ahead and say for now, Remind us of our core truth from Romans 8, 1 through 11. And then if you have any other questions, I can hang up here for a few moments. Let's remember, I don't need to point to that because that's all sorts of other stuff. Paul's point in Romans 1 through 8, 1 through 11 is before Jesus, all of us were headed towards judgment and stuck in sin. The law could show us that this was the problem, but it couldn't actually do anything about it. So what God did in sending Jesus to die in our place and the Holy Spirit to dwell in us is actually took care of both of those problems. We now have forgiveness, and we now are in the process of being made holy. That's the good news of Romans 8, 1 through 11, and so we'll pick up with Romans 8, 12 next week. I'll see you then. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cocchurch.com.